Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. I love that. This is the cause that we live for. And if you're just joining us for the first time here today, you've heard probably a heap already this morning of stuff that might have just gone over your head going, I don't know what they're talking about because maybe you're new here and you don't know what we're talking about. Hopefully you've heard the cause that we totally believe in. We believe in people. We believe that God loves people. And so our whole mission as a local church is to do our best to follow in God's example and to love humanity. It's not a complicated goal, but it's a big goal. And so it's so great to be able to have you here with us. And if you are part of Suncoast, obviously here this morning, you haven't had yet the chance of partnering with our mission, our vision this year. A few weeks ago, we launched, we had our vision Sunday, and that's why these are on your seat right now. So if you haven't had the chance of uh, partnering with us, please do so. Um, take these home with you, have a read. If you've got any questions about how to give or how you can be part of it, our team after the service would love to help you. In fact, I think we've got an updated figure here. This is uh, in the past two weeks, this is how much has come in towards our goal. So already you've given $147,000 towards the vision, I just think that's amazing. I just want to say thank you, and I'm proud of you. And this is going to go a whole long way. I've been able to, uh, to help a lot of people and do what we're called to do um, and reach people. So our goal, we really want to hit 200 grand by next week. And so if you haven't had the chance to partner with us, there's still a chance to do that. But um, this is part two of our series, Not According to Plan. And be in the middle of the year. Maybe you had certain goals in your life. I don't know if you are a New Year's resolution kind of person or you're someone who got given like a gym membership for Christmas and you finally dragged yourself along to get to the gym or whatever it is. And, and now here you are in June and the mornings are getting freezing. By the way, you need to give yourself a round of applause for getting out of bed and getting to the early service this morning. You guys are amazing. I really mean it. Seriously. Uh, all those 10, 15 attendees, you know, softies, you know. Um, what do they know about faith, you know? You guys, you guys drag yourself out of bed. But, you know, it gets to the middle of the year. And so that very, it's, just, it's just a thing, right? It's not necessarily faith. It's just a thing that it's cold. I don't know if I can keep up with my kind of routines or my habits or my disciplines. Maybe you found yourself going beyond your normal budgetary spending. And so whatever it is, we often find ourselves, we've had our plan, but then it doesn't take us long to realize that whatever our plan, uh, things just don't always go according to plan. And so if you're here, if you missed last week, we, we asked a few questions around this idea, what happens in life, particularly when it pertains to uh, kind of inviting God into, you know, your, your, your plans that have gone, uh, you know, astray. What happens if you get no answer? Or what happens if you get a no answer? What happens if you have an opportunity to be offended and how do you respond? And so we looked at that tension. And so if you missed last week, I encourage you, you can jump on our app and have a listen anytime you want. But I want to build from there today because uh, I, I quickly realized that often when it comes to our plans, we, we usually get more than we bargain for in our lives. And we make our plans, whatever it might be, in family or finance, uh, even in, in terms of faith. But we, we often so get what we don't bargain for. In fact, you'll quickly learn if you haven't already, and most of you probably have, is that rarely does life offer us shortcuts usually life makes us go the long way around in anything, right? So, so and when someone has, a, you know, we take shortcuts, we get a bit, hang on a second, is this going to turn out the way I thought? Now, I don't know where you stand with taking shortcuts in life. Shortcuts can be good. Shortcuts can end up really bad and end up being a long way around, right? So I'm sure you've all got stories about it. I, I love shortcuts when they prove efficient, when they help us uh, spend less or, you know, save more time. Um, and then other times, shortcuts can end up costing us more in the long run, right? So, for example, if you take your, your home environments. So 
who's the mower? Who mows lawns? Who's the person responsible for mowing lawns? Any women? Any women proud? There? Okay, good. Very good. Don't be shy. The men next to you, though, should be very ashamed, you know. Anyways, so uh, I, we, my wife and I used to live in this block of land, and the backyard was like, was like this. It was a goat track. Remember that, Nathaniel? It was like, so, so trying to learn to mow this lawn was, was a, an experiment in engineering, okay? Now, I might not know much about engineering, but I married an engineer's daughter, so I'm kind of in the club. So I figured out how to, how to kind of get on the, like this angle and, and push this lawnmower because, you know, you only want to spend so much time out in the yard that you, than you have to. And so, you know, you want to save fuel. No, you know, I don't know, maybe you love mowing the lawn, but I had this old push thing that was older than Methuselah, cushion jokes. But anyway, so I, I worked out the efficient way of mowing the lawn. So could you go on it to look nice? We also don't, you know, don't want to spend too long out there and hopefully then uh, the, whoever's inside chilling out can, has a delicious iced tea waiting for you when you finish, however it works in your household. Um, so that's kind of the, I like it to take efficiency. I hate going the long way around mowing the lawn. Give me the, the quickest, most efficient way. But when it comes to dishes in my household, and I don't know if it's in your way, um, I believe there are no shortcuts to clean dishes. Okay, now you might have a dishwasher, but I am married to an amazing person who thinks that the dishwasher should do what it was paid to do, wash the dishes. And so just put the dishes in dirty. I think they should be rinsed. Who's a rinser before they go in the dishwasher? God bless you. Who thinks the dishwasher should do what you've paid for it to do? Okay, we're split. But what happens when you take the shortcut, right? The dishwasher finishes, and sure enough, you have to rewash the dishes if you didn't rinse them off. Okay, thank, who agrees with me? Good preaching, great. Okay, <laughs> I've just lost half the crowd, but won the other half, so great. Um, so, so sometimes shortcuts work out for the best, sometimes they just, they, they, just don't, they don't. A few years back, I was on a, a uh, bit of a, a kind of a hiking, um, um, I don't know what, what I'm referring to, it was an adventure. And an expedition. Thank you, Jazz. I was looking for that word exactly, making me sound more important than I am. And um, a whole bunch of dudes, do you remember this time? And a bunch of the guys were climbing up this kind of real steep embankment. You had to use like a rope. And I was like, that is too long. I'm going to find the, the shortcut way around. And so that involved me jumping off the side of this embankment into the water and then scaling kind of the side of this, uh, this, this cliff face. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing. And so by trying to go around a shortcut and avoiding the pitfalls of what seemed to be a hard climb, I ended up injuring my back. And so I was like, great, shortcut didn't pay off. And so I ended up going to a physio to like fix my back. So I go in thinking I'd have this done at one appointment, crack my back, massage my back, give me some drugs. I don't know what you do, just make it go away. And the physio said to me, there are no, no shortcuts to your healing. This is going to be a long process. I'm like, well, how long? Like, you know, eight days? And they're like, no, 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 like try, try a couple of months. And so... Um, so it took me about three months of consistently doing all these back exercises, etc. You know, great story, Johnny. The point is this: often, often just in life, shortcuts just don't exist for us, or at least they don't they don't lead us anywhere that's going to be helpful or beneficial to our life. And and the truth is, the example that we see in the life of Jesus often showed this principle to be true so often that in fact God God never took shortcuts, particularly when it comes to how He valued your life and how He valued my life. And we see right at the beginning, and what I want to explore today is is, is kind of Jesus' approach to His mission and His plan for his time on earth and how that can relate to our lives because we all have our plans and you have your mission and you have the the goals and ambitions you have for your life. And often it can be this one-dimensional outlook. Here's point A, I wanna get to point B and that's as simple as it's gonna get. But if we learn anything from the example of Jesus, it's not simply always point A to point B when it comes to the plan. And just because the plan might be divergent or not go according to how you hope, it doesn't mean that God is not involved 
with the plan. And so what I want to look at today is when Jesus began his ministry. Jesus spent essentially around the first 30 years of his life uh, in a trade, in a family trade. Um, wasn't a, a, known as a rabbi or that we know of or, or as a teacher or anyone who's particularly uh, unique to the rest of the world. Um, and then he got baptized in the Jordan River. There's an amazing moment where he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Those who were there heard the voice of God speak, saying, this is my son who I'm well pleased. An amazing moment to kind of just say to the world, this guy is who you are waiting for. And then before he went and did any miracles, preached any sermon, started showing the world who he was, something remarkable happened that if I was writing the plan, this was not being the plan that I would have written. And this is recorded in Luke's gospel of, uh, of just after Jesus got baptized. So, so Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. The Jordan was the river and area. It was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. This sounds wonderful, right? And he ate nothing. It's getting worse. During those days and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, this is what's always baffled me about this. And, and um, Matthew's gospel also records this. It says, it says that he didn't kind of get lost into the wilderness or was, was like, uh, you know, he accidentally ended up there. It says he was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. And without trying to overhype this or overplay this, the, the wilderness really is what you think it is. It's a place that's barren. It's a place that's dangerous. It's a place where there's no support. It's a place where you get, uh, you kind of get, you lose all the things you're confident in by yourself. It's a place where you have to learn to depend on something greater than yourself. And, and Jesus didn't kind of accidentally end up there. Luke records, and it's amazing because no one else was there. That means Jesus must have recounted this story over and over again. And he said, I ended up in the wilderness because God led me there. That this wasn't because life was unfair to me. This wasn't because life was unjust or people were cruel. And indeed, maybe you find yourself in a season of life right now because of someone else's cruelty, of someone else's mistake, maybe your own mistake. Maybe you've made some unwise decisions and you find yourself right now in a season that can best be described as like a wilderness. It's barren. It's not fruitful. There's no roadmap. There's no map at all. And you kind of feel a little bit lost. <laughs> what Jesus described, he ended up in the wilderness because that's what God's plan was for him. And I find this, this something we have to, to wrestle with in our life. And maybe you're someone who is wrestling with faith in general. Maybe this is your first time in church ever, or at least for a long time. And you found yourself here because maybe you're in a kind of a wilderness season of your life where the things you've usually depended on or trusted in just do not exist anymore. And so you feel a little bit barren or lost. And so you're looking for maybe a God that can be found in the wilderness. And what I want to look at today, and this is kind of our, our starting premise or thought for, for part two of this series, is that even... Even the wilderness can be part of God's plan. Now, this is a simple thought and probably something you've thought of, but I want to begin with this because it'd be too easy for us to discount the season we're in where it seems, again, dry, lonely, unfruitful, um, painful, and say, well, clearly God's abandoning me. We heard from Carol's story earlier. By the way, wasn't that just so encouraged? I just get so encouraged by Carol's story. Well, she was saying she's found God in it, and she's learned something about the nature of her Heavenly Father because of of it. And then she's there saying it with a smile and gratitude. And I look at people like Carol and going, man, if I was in, man, the, you wouldn't, there'd be just beeps all through my testimony, you know, like, but, but here she is like with a smile on her face. And I'm like, what is it about some people who learn that even the wilderness can be part of God's plan for our life? Now, let me explain the wilderness for a little bit in, in general terms. 
Because in our kind of world we live in now where comfort is king, and I don't say that as a slight on us, I just say it's, it's the, the reality of, of our lives. Um, we spend money to make sure we have comfort. I mean, who turned on the heater first thing this morning? Who kicked the person out of their bed and said, I'm not getting out until you turn on the heater? <laughs> so, you know, we live, comforts all, it's a, you know, we have incredible comforts, but it obviously wasn't always like this. I mean, barely, <laughs> barely 100 years ago, for most of the world, just getting food for the day was a mission. Okay, so we live with incredibly, incredible comfort these days. So, so, you know, stay with me for the next 10 seconds while I explain a bit of kind of modern history. You know, when the Industrial Revolution kind of hit, I'm using very broad terms here, people kind of left these regional wild spaces and moved to the cities and moved to the towns. And then we began to kind of be these city dwellers. And then we began to build houses and live amongst them and electricity and steam. All these things happened. And so we began to live in these domesticated suburban lifestyles, which arguably most of us here live in today. Wonderful comfort. Ease to the, you know, you can walk to the shops, you can pick up the milk, you can pick up your groceries, all the things, everything's there for you. Um, and then what happened eventually is people started heading back to the wild places, to the wilderness. And because they, they recognized that we'd, we kind of lost something by living these heavily domesticated, comfortable existence. It's like, I don't know, there's, there seemed to be this itch in, inside of the human psyche that we aren't supposed to live our lives all the time in comfort and all the time with ease and all the time with everything at our fingertips. Like, it's almost as if to suggest that, that we lose something when we don't have to work for something. That we lose the value in life when life always gets handed to us on a silver platter. And so that has led people back into the areas that once were deemed as dangerous and wilderness and wild. And now people go there. People pay to go to these places now. People pay to get stripped of luxuries and stripped of comfort. And some of you have purchased really expensive camping and hiking and wilderness gear so you can get away from comfort and somehow survive um, in, in the wilderness. And um, if you're watching online here right now because you're out camping, because I know some of you are, uh, hopefully you're not too cold wherever you are there in Tasmania. So um, I know there's some Tasmanians here this morning. God bless you. Good to meet you. So I don't know what you have in mind when you think of like the wilderness and getting wild and heading out there. As noble as it might sound, you, you might be someone and you think of, you know, camping. And, and this is a picture of you and your ideal scenario when you think of the wild. That's you and your family, right? Kids are having a great time. The tent's set up perfectly. This is a great bonding time. Phones are off. There's no signal here. This is why we go to the wild. Anyone who that can relate to that picture, you're like, yes. Wow, okay, no hands. That means most of you can relate to this is your picture of heading into the wilderness. That one. <laughs> who can relate to that? That's your idea. When someone says, let's go wild, you're thinking, yeah, that's not exactly my idea of fun, you know? <laughs> so, but, so this is kind of an odd thought because... What we see in the beginning of Jesus' ministry is it's to the wild, to the wilderness was the very first place that he didn't get lost in, that he didn't make a mistake and find himself there. He was led there by the Spirit of God. And so when I think about that, I go, why? Before he did anything significant, before he made any huge impact on the world, he was led to the wilderness. And I think, and this is the point of it, is that, and again, I think most of us were probably not in agreement that there are some things that really can only happen to us or some things that we can only learn when we're in the wilderness. That you rarely learn things about yourself when everything's going according to plan. It's when things don't go according to plan that you realize what you're made of. And that can go two ways because you can realize what you're made of in terms of, wow, I'm really impatient. And wow, I get angry really quickly. And wow, that whole like, 
God part of my life was really just a novelty. There really isn't much depth to this. Or going to the wilderness, you can learn what you're really made of. To see that there's more to you than you first thought. And that when you apply yourself to something, when the pressure's on, you actually outperform than what you thought you could have done. And some of you might be in seasons like that where, where you are learning something that if, if things didn't go, if things always stayed according to your plan, there are things that you would have never learned about yourself or about life, about your partner, about your kids, about your own potential, maybe even about God. And so you are learning to be grateful that things haven't gone according to plan because there are some things that need to happen in us Unfortunately, that can only happen through the process of the wilderness or through the process of pain. And there are some areas in our lives where there just simply are no shortcuts. And this often baffles me. I don't know if it does you too about the nature of how God works. And I look at often how God will do something slowly. I'm like, I know you can do that quicker. Why don't you? And so there's questions we ask of God. And maybe your question's been something like this. God, why don't you make belief easy? Have you ever asked that question before? Like, why does this have to be so difficult sometimes? I, I found myself many times in the course of my life asking, God, if you could just like, just prove yourself without a shadow of a doubt, then, then you know, it's all good. It's, I'm, I'm in, I'll endure what I'm enduring. I'll just, just somehow, just, but why is it that belief isn't that simple all the time? Why is it that belief is difficult? Maybe you've asked a similar, maybe it hasn't been those words, but maybe you're asking a similar question right now and you're looking for God in the middle of a wilderness season or where things haven't gone according to plan. And you're, God, why aren't you making the faith and belief thing easy for me? What happens next to Jesus as the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness? He has an encounter out of all people with Satan, with the devil. It's kind of like this one-on-one showdown in the, in, the, in the wilderness here. And often some of you might feel like that. You are facing like, it feels like you are facing off with the devil himself in the season you're in. You just feel like everything is against you right now. And what takes place here is amazing. We see something about the character and nature of Jesus when it pertains to seasons of our life where we find ourselves in the wilderness areas and why God does not take shortcuts. So the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness and here's how the, uh, the engagement goes. A few verses here, so stay with me. So the devil said to him, keep in mind he hadn't eaten for 40 days Talk about being hangry, right? If you've ever not eaten for 40 hours, you've done, remember the 40-hour famine? Remember how angry you were? Imagine 40 days and you're in the wilderness and then the devil rocks up, okay? So the devil said to him, let me put it in terms you can understand. You haven't eaten for ages. Someone rocks up with a Krispy Kreme and they don't share it with you, okay? There you go, there's the devil. Okay, so the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, and he quotes an Old Testament passage, Man shall not live by bread alone. So the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. The devil said to him, I will give you all all their authority and splendor because it has been given to me and I can give it to to anyone who I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered again. He quotes an Old Testament passage. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Finally, the devil led him up to Jerusalem had him stand on the highest point of the temple. The temple is located right in the heart. You can still visit some of the remains there today in the old city of Jerusalem. Took him to the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And so keep in mind, Jesus had rebutted these two previous temptations from the devil with quoting scripture. So Satan is like, I'm going to try him at his own game. And so Satan tempted him and said, throw yourself down from here for it is written. This is the, the devil now quoting Bible. Side note, just because someone quotes Bible doesn't mean they're necessarily godly. Anyways or interpret correctly, <laughs> says he will command, well, 
He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully and they will lift you up in their hands and so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It concludes by Jesus answering, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had finished all these tempting, he left him until an opportune time and then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread. This is amazing. These three temptations that Satan put before him. He said, one, he's just starving, make bread. Jesus wouldn't do it. Two, he said, okay, you're here to save humanity. And he showed more the kings of the world. And he said, if you just worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world for free. I'll, I'll literally hand them over to you. Jesus refused. And then finally he said, all right then, Mr. Tough Guy, why don't you prove yourself by throwing yourself off this building and let's see if God's true to his word then see if he'll save you from the consequences that happen. So, and there's been a whole lot written and maybe you've got your own thoughts about what took place here. But however you conclude it, what, in, what is interesting to note <laughs> is that Satan tempted Jesus towards the good parts of being human whilst avoiding bad parts. I mean, think about it this way. He offered him the chance to savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and of agriculture. Furthermore, he offered him the opportunity to enjoy fame and power and authority without the prospects of being painfully rejected. And finally, he asked him to confront risk without any real fear of danger. So again, the best parts of being human without any of the bad parts. In short, this is what he was being tempted, to wear a crown, but not a cross. To wear a crown, but not a cross. And what is remarkable is is Jesus refused it. Jesus refused to take a shortcut towards his mission. Jesus recognized in order to get the crown, that was ultimately, we're not up to that one yet, and ultimately to get the crown, and ultimately get the promise, and ultimately to win people, he recognized he had to go through a season of wearing a cross. And obviously right central to the Christian message is that before there's a resurrection, there had to be crucifixion. Before there was new life, they had to experience death. And Jesus refused to take a shortcut. The devil offered him an opportunity. And, and in the same way, you and I can often be tempted to take shortcuts in our own development. Maybe you're tempted to take shortcuts in the development of your marriage, raising kids. I mean, there's temptation to take shortcuts all the time. And rarely do temptations end up rewarding us with the crowns that you and I are truly chasing in our life. But there'll always be the temptation to wear the crowns without ever having to wear the cross. And what is remarkable is Satan, in effect, was dangling before Jesus a speeded up way or a shortcut way of accomplishing his mission. And Jesus' response is remarkable. He surrendered his greatest advantage. In being God, and remember this comes back to the question, God, why do you make belief difficult? In being God, Jesus surrendered his power to compel belief in people. He refused to compel belief. Think of it this way, okay? Because if he was to to perform something miraculous like that. And just and as people, many people ask Jesus, do us a sign, prove to us, show us who you are. If you just show, we'll believe. If you just show us, we'll believe it. But it's like he pref- refused. There was this kind of this hesitancy of Jesus to make this overt, to kind of create a space where all of people's doubts were completely answered forever. He never took shortcuts. Almost as if to assume this, that if he showed himself, if he clearly just went, hey, look, I'm God, then the world would really have, and here's the kicker, the world would really have no choice when it came to belief. Now, at first thought, you might think, well, that's brilliant. But if you think about it, then your freedom has been taken from you. And so we don't know all the answers why, but we do, we can draw the conclusion that God values your freedom, even the freedom to ignore His existence so highly and so much 
that he withstood every temptation in which to shortcut his mission. It's been concluded before that maybe God insists on such restraint because no pyrotechnics, you know, of, of kind of omnipotent power will ever achieve the response in humans that he truly desires. Because although power can force obedience, and we see this in nations where they've got corrupt, you know, political kind of uh, situations, and we've seen it all through history where power can force obedience, only love can summon a response of love. And by looking at how Jesus interacted here with these temptations, it can be concluded that this is the one thing that God wants from us. He doesn't want people who have been forced into belief. He wants people who have been wooed by His love for them. And so while this might not be the whole answer, it's definitely an answer. So we realize this, and it's frustratingly annoying at times, is that God often chooses to do slowly with us what He could do quickly by Himself. And this is such an important principle to understand. Again, I don't have the answer why. This is just an observation. You look at things, God, I know you can just do this quickly. Like I've, I've heard stories, I've seen you do it. You've done it in my life before. But we see this pattern with God. He will often want to work with you and do something slowly in partnership with you. So for example, have you ever asked God to just fix your spouse before? You notice he doesn't do that because the person who really needs fixing is you. And so when I ask him that, he goes, okay, 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 okay. And he'll walk with you slowly, bringing about in you, but really, you should be so grateful he didn't do quickly because it would have really hurt. God loves us. And the God way is like that. It's often slow. We often have our plans and how we hope things would turn out, <laughs> but God has his plan. And sometimes God's plan involves leading us into the wilderness. Sometimes it means leading us. And I mean, there's one thing for me to say this, but sometimes it involves leading us through and into painful seasons. But sometimes there are some development and maturity and growth and even healing that is necessary and is only accomplished through the passage of pain. Sometimes we need to walk through a pathway of pain in order to truly know liberation and order to truly know fear. I mean, again, I'm reminded that inside of every single one of us is a six pack and the liberation of it is only realized through the process of pain. They'll laugh at that in the next service probably. (laughs) I have to get warmed up, yeah. Um, what, how does this work in real life? I'm going to go to an extreme example and then maybe we can draw some personal encouragement from this. Two remarkable figures from history, um, Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Gandhi was famously known for nonviolent resistance and there was a remarkable story about his time with a pastor and he, uh, in South Africa. And Gandhi was known as someone who really explored the, the, the Christian faith and he was so fascinated by Jesus himself. We never see a, a profession of faith in Christianity. His biggest reason that he gave for that is because he felt he never truly met a Christian, a follower of Jesus. He saw people who carried the title but didn't live the life. And so there's one story, I don't know to what extent it's true, but this is how the story goes, that he was walking with this pastor in South Africa and a mob of thugs uh, cornered them in a the street. And the pastor, such a wuss, you know, pastors, um, he, he went to bolt and run away. And Gandhi grabs him and says, no, 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 don't run off, don't run off. And he's like, well, why? And he goes, didn't Jesus teach something in the New Testament about like turning the other cheek? And the pastor mumbled back to him, yeah, yeah, but like that's he's kind of like a metaphor, you know, it's a metaphor, it's, a, it's, an illust- it's a parable. And Gandhi goes, I'm not quite sure, I'm not so sure. Because I think Jesus was really speaking about showing courage. I think Jesus actually really at times would suggest, come on, take a few blows. He goes, and the reason I think that is because I've seen this work. Because if, if Jesus is encouraging courage and for you to take a few blows, what's going to happen is it will send a message to the perpetrator, to the, the, the one committing the crime or the, uh, the assault, 
that number one, you're not going to strike back. And number two, that you're not going to back down. He goes, and what happens there, I've seen this. It evokes a different kind of response in the attacker. It causes their anger to subside and it causes almost like this awakening or this realization to come alive. He goes, and I think Jesus was onto that. And I think Jesus knew something about that. And so this is kind of, he's trying to espouse the Jesus way of doing things. It seems more painful and seems more slower, but it gets the result that God's truly after. And so Martin Luther King comes along and he saw the injustice that was happening to particularly the African-American population in the United States, let alone across the whole world. And he was really moved and inspired by the example of Gandhi, which ultimately was inspired by the teachings and life of Jesus Christ. And so he wanted to kind of like put this into practice himself. And much to the, the disgust and pushback and rejection of much of the African-American community at the time who wanted to see violent resistance to the violent oppression. And we could all nod ahead and agree with that. I mean, if someone's been violent against you, you're like, well, I want to kind of push back and get the results I want. Martin Luther King went to great extremes for all his flaws. He went to great extremes to be like, hey, hey it's either non-violent, not, it's either non-violent or we don't do this at all. Because he recognized in order to get a moral change in people, you couldn't go about it through a moral means. Did you catch that? In order to get a moral change, you couldn't achieve it through a moral means. It's in the one word, immoral, not amoral. So here's what he said. He was quoted as saying this, the real goal was not to defeat the white man, but to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor because the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. And both Gandhi and King realized that in order to get the response they were truly seeking, I mean, for, for Martin Luther King, he wanted to see not just the laws change. He wanted to see the American people change. He wanted to see conviction change and the heart of people change. And he recognized it wasn't going to happen through any other way other than the Jesus way. It was more painful. They had to patiently endure, but they got there. Eventually, the nation repented. And he was quoted as saying this. This is Martin Luther King. He said, in order to get the crown, you must carry the cross. And he understood this is the opposite of what Satan was tempting Jesus with, saying, hey, you can have all this without wearing a cross. And King was like, no, 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 Jesus was onto something here. He understood that in order to truly get the crown we're chasing, chasing, there is a necessary time where we have to carry the cross. Unfortunately, this means pain. And the wilderness seasons of our life is too often equal pain. And maybe the season of life you're going at right now, it's just, it is there's no other way of sugarcoating. It is just really, really painful. And you're trying to find God in the middle of your pain. But like pain, like pain, if wilderness is, is a painful season of our life, it is what you do with pain that makes all the difference. Think of it this way, okay? And we saw Carol's story before. It was so encouraging. You can see people walking through the same kind of pain or rejection. I mean, loss of relationship, loss of opportunities. See people walk through the same things. Why is it some people can walk through certain seasons of loss and grief and pain, and yet it seems like they grow more trusting and, and filled with more empathy, and they're more compassionate to people, and they still keep their joy. And in fact, their joy grows. Why other people can go through the same thing, and maybe you've experienced this or know someone who's experiencing this, but they go through the pain and it leads them towards a path of bitterness and hopelessness, and anger, and rejection. So like pain, the wilderness, it's what we do with it that can make all the difference. Pain often exists to get our attention. Pain exists to point us towards something that needs changing. And so what do you do when pain comes your way? What are you doing maybe right now in your life where you're in a wilderness season? How do you deal with pain? How do you deal with it? Do you avoid it? Do you hide from it? Do you dope it? Do you ignore it? Or do you face it? Do you confront it? And do you use it as fuel, as a teacher, and as a boundary? And here's the thing, our Christianity doesn't provide the answers to why pain happens in our life. It does provide us with deep resources in order to confront our pain with hope and courage instead of bitterness 
and despair, deep resources. And so if you're in a season right now, the Christian promise isn't no pain. It's not follow Jesus and your life experience, no pain. The Christian promise is hope in your pain. And before that sounds overly cliched or overly spiritual or too simplistic, remember this. Every single person experiences pain in life. Not everyone experiences hope in their pain. And what Jesus offers is hope in your pain. In fact, there was a song that Jesus would have sung when he was on earth. It was an, an Old Testament psalm written by one of the psalmists who, who lived in the time of King David. And they wrote this line. This is an, an amazing promise. It said this, Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great as our God? Your way or your path or the God's plan is found in the sanctuary. What does sanctuary mean? It's, it speaks of something that's different to just the normal world, the normal earth. It speaks of something that is holy, something that is godly. And God's plan, it's so important to understand, God's plan is not like our plans. It isn't earthly. It isn't, it isn't always something that can be um, kind of minimized or, 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 or made shortcuts out of it. But he said God's way is above our ways. God's ways, it's not as simple as we always like to see it. It's not as always clean cut as we like to see it. But he said it's found in the sanctuary. And so here's my question for you, is where do you find sanctuary? When you're in your pain, when you're in your wilderness season, and some of you are in it right now, right now, where are you finding your sanctuary? In our culture, it is too either for us to, to dumb our senses, to, to, uh, to, to dull the feelings of pain, and we easily turn to alcoholism, to entertainment, to pornography, to relationships. We do anything we can to avoid pain, and we avoid it. It seems so counterintuitive to confront pain and to look it head on. We'd much prefer to avoid it. But the Christian message is this, that there is, there is a God who is present. And we sung a song earlier about it, who is present with us in seasons of pain and present with us in seasons of wilderness. And so I want to ask you this question, is where are you turning to find sanctuary? And if you recall what happened with Jesus in this moment where he was being tempted by the devil, right at the end, there's this amazing part how it concludes. And it's easy to miss, but I'm going to read it again, verses 13 and 14. It says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned. I love this. The Holy Spirit was the very person who led him into the wilderness. And at the end of it, it says he returned in the power of the Spirit. So what am I saying? It's this. It's God offers you his own strength when you come to the end of yours. Maybe you've come to the end of all your questioning and all your bargaining and you're in the middle of all your pain and you have come to the end of your strength. God is offering you his strength or maybe yours has given out. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.